0: Yo, what up? This is Dart Adams, and this is episode 57 of Dart Against Humanity. Uh, Last week, I explained what I was going to do with episode 57. So, let me lay down the groundwork so you understand exactly why I'm even doing this episode. Okay? Uh, June 1989, uh, Nintendo is at a crossroads. They dominate the video game industry. However, looming over the horizon, that summer is the beginning of what they now call the fourth generation of um video gaming. And what that entails is the release of the Sega... Genesis, and then the um, NEC TurboGrafx-16. Both of these are supposed to be 16-bit systems and possibly cut into uh, Nintendo's domination of the video game industry. Now, what's also happening at the same time is Nintendo I think I mentioned this in a previous episode, but Nintendo is kind of being paper gangsters. They're controlling their third-party game developers. They're having them sign these oppressive contracts, and they don't want them to develop for um, other companies. And knowing that the upcoming Sega Genesis and uh, NEC... TurboGrafx 16 are coming up, they don't want their uh, game developers making killer games for these other um, systems and possibly, you know, further cutting into their um, market share. That's neither here nor there. There's another issue that Nintendo has to deal with. In June 1989, uh, what they have is, okay, so there are these things called the CES, Consumer Electronic Show. Uh, they have one typically in uh, January, that's the winter version, they have that one in Las Vegas, obvious reasons. Uh, but they also had a summer one, this time they had the summer one in Chicago, because it's summer, you don't need to have it in Las Vegas. So I believe early June, 1989, they have the CES in Chicago. During it, there's a big uh, beef between Nintendo and some other companies. And of course there's a lot of bad blood left over from the uh, chip shortage issue that I mentioned in the previous episode. Uh, But what happens is I'll just read from the billboard issue, um, June 24th, 1989. The headline reads, this is from the home video section too, there's a reason why. The Nintendo retailer battle rages on at CES meeting. Nintendo steamed. it doesn't want video dealers to rent its video game cartridges. But alas, there is nothing the video game manufacturer can do but complain about how unfair it is. And even as the company's lawyers explores ways to stop the rental of video games, dealers are being told that it's crazy to ignore its profit potential. The conflict was clearly in evidence at the recent Consumer Electronics Show. A panel discussion that explored the future of video retailing must have spent 20 minutes talking about the viability of video game rental. Gary Delphine of West Coast Video remarked that stores with no video game rentals are missing the boat. The always tactful Alan Kaplan of Applause Video said Nintendo was absolutely ignorant in its stand against video stores. For their part, Nintendo and its licensees talk about intellectual properties and the need to protect their copyrights. In fact, Nintendo's entire argument mirrors that of the movie studios. You'll remember that Hollywood initially cited essentially the same reasons when it tried to prevent retailers from renting movies on video. At CES, a topic of video stores renting video game cartridges did not sit well, with the executives maintaining the 52,000 square foot Nintendo booth. Damn. If video retailers are serious about video games, then they will sell them, not rent them, said Ed Bernstein, a VP for Broderbund Software, a Nintendo licensee. Bernstein allowed that dealers have, at least for the time being, a legal right to rent the cartridges. His problem with game rental is that a video game is not like a movie and cannot be watched in an hour and a half. It takes 40 to 50 hours of practice to get good at these games. So what's the point of a consumer renting them? You would have to rent them over and over again to really enjoy a game. It would be cheaper for the consumer to buy it. That may be so, but wouldn't it be the consumer who decides? How about people who like to try out a game a day or two before they buy it? No matter, Nintendo does not want video dealers to rent its games. Will it be able to stop this growing practice? Don't bet on it. Keep in mind, though, that a lot of specialty dealers would just as soon stick the video, but can't. Competitive pressures have pulled... Specialty Dealers in Many Directions. Now, then the article just goes off on a tangent on some other shit that I don't really care about and isn't even relevant to the topic that I'm discussing. Now, we jump ahead to uh, the July 8th edition of Billboard. And in the video retailing section. It lists Nintendo Front. Are there any video stores these days not renting Nintendo? The VSDA is alerting members to U.S. Senate Bill No. 198, the Computer Software Rental Amendments Act of 1989, yes, this exists, which includes protection for video games, which was forced reported in Billboard July 1st. So, with this protection, what this meant is that video stores could rent Nintendo games even if Nintendo was unhappy about it. So what happened was Suncoast Video Blockbuster um, in my neighborhood we had a we had a chain called Video Smith any video chain had the right to go ahead and rent Nintendo cartridges Now, I need to outline something else. At the time this happens, we have to remember that the best time for these systems, the best time for these companies to uh, put out anything of this nature, like to rent games, uh, the best time to do it is when the kids are out of school. And by kids... I'm not just talking children by kids because their parents would have the rental uh, account. So we're talking anything, anywhere from kids who have to get their parents permission. We're talking teenagers, motherfuckers that get drive and we're talking college aged students. OK, that's what we're looking at. So we're going anywhere between the age of seven to nine all the way up to through twenty one. Okay, that's the demographic we fucking with here. So let's think about it. Between this space of time when it was in limbo, what was happening was uh, I've I've saw it happen and I know what happened. Uh, Video retailers, what they were doing was they were essentially sometimes sending. Employees to go to Babbage's. To go to um, electronic boutique. To go to uh, Sears. Wherever they could. um, To buy Nintendo games. The hot games. Maybe get multiple copies. To rent them. Rent them for $2.99 a night. If you keep it extra. It's another $2.99 on top of that. Um, So let me first outline something. What Nintendo games were released. In June 1989. Mega Man 2, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Adventures of Bayou Billy, Track and Field 2, Super Dodgeball. That's June 1989. What was um, released in July 1989? Cobra Triangle, Strider, Baseball Stars. Okay? I just listed. That's eight games, but there are other games. There's probably like 12 or 15, but those eight are now considered classics. So those are your money makers. If you go into a video store and you see they have a rental copy of Track and Field 2, or you see they had a rental copy of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Mega Man 2 or Strider or Cobra Triangle, Kids were going to rent those fucking games because buying it, the game costs $49.99. Okay, so you could rent it. And yes, oftentimes what would happen was you rent the game, you might rent it for two days. So that's just an extra, what, $2.99, maybe $3. So you rent the game, you spend 5 $6 to rent it that's far less than spending 50 plus tax to buy okay you could buy a tape for $7.99 $6.99 dollars 99 with tax is $7.34 $7.99 with tax is $8.39 you're spending less than that to rent a game for a couple of days and if you didn't rent the game you're going to rent a v- uh, VHS tape No big deal. No harm, no foul. And if you rent it to somebody who took out the game for extra days, it's going to pay for itself. So a game could pay for itself in anywhere between, I don't know, high end 14 days, low end seven to nine. So you are just making nothing but profit after that. And some games didn't get popular until the school year started. So you would have a game, you drop a game in June, but that shit didn't really pop off until like September, October, you know, some, some games, you know, it, it took a minute to catch on. So why this is important is because, uh, coming into the fourth generation of games where they're looking at the Sega Genesis dropping the soft, opening, I believe was August 14th, 1989 and then two weeks later uh, they had the uh, TurboGrafx-16 was going to release in um, certain uh, regions August 29th, 1989 now I know they had the Game Boy coming out but that's not the same thing now, I also need to outline something else for you. Game journalism, which I've talked about in a previous episode. Uh, I believe I did the, the birth of game journalism. So around this time, we're looking at. You have. Computer and video games magazine, which not a lot of people read. Because it didn't really focus on you know, console gaming. So people didn't really care. You have Nintendo Power, which of course is all about Nintendo. However, what you also have is Electronic Gaming Monthly. Which had just recently launched. And what also had just launched the month after that was GamePro. And these magazines were crucial because they leveled the playing field. And the pages of Electronic Gaming Monthly and GamePro, they were pretty much focused on, yes, here's your Nintendo content, but here's what's coming up for the Sega Genesis, and here's what's coming up for the um, Turbo Graphics 16 and here's what's going on in um, arcades. Now, when you opened up these magazines, you're seeing full-color 16-bit games. You're seeing the pictures. You're looking at the graphics. And when they talk about the upcoming games for the Game Boy, you were looking at grayscale, barely eight bit graphics. Um, Nintendo would be shitting bricks because they realized, yes, we have Nintendo power which is a magazine, it's full glossy, it's hundreds, hundred plus pages, it's thick, it has all this stuff in there, it has people doing illustrations, you know, it has all this 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 gloss this high end production. But at the end of the day, if you're talking to gamers they're not looking at Nintendo the same way they were before, because there are 16-bit systems on the horizon. This changes everything. Now, um, for those of you who are wondering where I like get my information and shit from, um, so there are these different Places that you could go on the on on the internet, of course, because it's the internet. So retromags.com. I use retromags backslash magazines backslash USA backslash electronic dash gaming dash monthly backslash electron. Jesus Christ is a whole lot of fucking um uh, electronic gaming monthly. And um, what happens is there's just every electronic gaming monthly going back to when it began just there it's just so that's one database another one is if you absolutely want to know um if you go to archive.org archive.org has a group of magazines they actually have computer um computer um and video games magazine which ran from 1981 to 1992 not a lot of people re- really read it like that um you can just find it If you go to archive.org, backslash details, backslash CVG dash magazine, they have that. It's boring, I got to tell you, compared to the other joints. Um, If you haven't read Nintendo Power in a long time, you go to archive.org. They also have um, the Nintendo Power issues. They also have the stream option where you could just like go sideways and see it or you could just download the entire PDF. So archive.org also has um, the Nintendo Power joints. It's interesting to read the Nintendo powers book. The reason why I have all these like bookmarked and stuff like that is because I, if you want to know when a game came out, it's important to have like the electronic gaming monthly, the game pro, and then cross check it with the Nintendo power. Because when they cover something, you know, like that's, and here's the thing too, back in the days I've told you this, um, we didn't get release dates we got the month it came out that's it we knew something was out when we got the circular or the Sunday paper you know with all the sales papers in it and you flip through the sales papers and it has the Nintendo games and it has pictured the games that just came out you're like oh it's out the only other way to know what a game came out is if you were a fucking mall rat and you went to the mall every Tuesday and Friday to see what was brand new. Unless you were working in one of these um, stores, you didn't know what was coming in new. And it's, and a lot of times when I've been told the people who worked there found out what the new games were. And when they came in, when they saw it come off when they saw the new pallets and they saw it come off, it was delivered by the truck. So this is one of the ways that I determine when a game got released. Like, uh, yesterday is the... the 30th anniversary of the release of Baseball Stars. How do I know this? Because I know the, the, um... The tapes that were released around the same time it came out. I know what tape dropped in late July. I know what tape dropped in early July. I know what tape dropped in August. Like, I know what Nintendo games dropped in August and when. Because also not only was it some album that came out or cassette that came out. But it's because it was near my birthday. And I know what I got for a birthday gift. Like for an example, in August, I know that three games came out, August 1989 for the NES. Um, one was Flying Dragon and Secret Skulls. My brother got that game. And the other two games we got were Faxanadu, which was a role-playing game, um, which was on my brother's dresser for a full week in the bag, and we didn't ask him what it was. And one day he came home from work, he was just like, Y'all ain't asked me what this was. I got it for y'all here. He was like, I'm surprised y'all ain't, y'all ain't asked me for that. And the other game I got for my birthday, around my 14th birthday, was um, Dragon Warrior. So I remember that shit like Yesterday. But yeah, Nintendo was really up against it. Um, They had to deal with the possibility of losing big market shares and fans. So they had to tighten everything up. So, what did they do? They came up with a three pronged attack. What that entailed was a $60 million ad blitz. $60 million. This is 1989 money. So what they wanted to do. Was they wanted to attack. Both regional and national um, advertisers. Before Nintendo. Wasn't really spending money like that. They would do 30 second ads. And for TV. The challenge Nintendo. And it would be. In that 30 second ad. They spend 15 seconds on one game. 15 seconds on another game. And those ads would pretty much air. During. Uh syndicated cartoons and mostly on like Saturday mornings that's it they would put ads in because there was nothing else to put ads in uh, comic books but when they did ads in comic books we had this discussion um, before and we also talked about this on Twitter for a minute when they put the ads in the comic books there was no date there was no time. They usually put ads in the comic so the game was already out. And usually the game was out for a while. And usually when the ad came out, it wasn't for the system. It was for the company that made the games. So Capcom would do an ad. Tingen would do an ad. You know? Like, those companies would do an ad. Konami would do an ad. It wouldn't be Nintendo. Or if Nintendo did one, it would be like Legend of Zelda. But it wouldn't be Legend of Zelda coming up with the date. It'd be after Legend of Zelda's already out. So it's just weird. So now they're spending $60 million in um, regional and ad money. And they're attacking both print and TV. They're putting ads in. Game Pro, they're putting ads in um, computer video gaming, they're putting ads in um, electronic gaming monthly, they're putting ads in video- they're putting ads in um, the, the normal comic books, they're putting ads in whatever they can find. Anything, anybody is accepting it. But also, what gets crazy is now they're doing TV, they're doing TV shit. Now they're doing the commercials now. Like they're really going at it with the commercials. But what they also did was uh, there was a company called Deke. Animation company. They work with Deke and they decide that they're going to do two things. There's going to be a syndicated show called the Super Mario Brothers Super Show. I'm sure you remember this. September 1989, the Super Mario Brothers Super Show kicks off it has Captain Lou Albano and some other guy who play Mario and Luigi in these recorded segments and then they have a Super Mario Brothers cartoon and they have a Legend of Zelda cartoon so that airs daily in syndication on the weekend starting in September they have this cartoon called Captain and the Game Master I think it had 13 episodes it aired on NBC animation looked cool it was mediocre as fuck anyways, right? But then the big thing that they were hinging on is they were going to... Also, they had a serial. Nintendo had a serial. But what they were really hinging on is that they were working that summer, especially, on a, um, a movie. They had Fred Savage, they had Jenny Lewis, and they were going to be in this movie called The Wizard. And in the movie, they were going to reveal... Um, Super Mario Brothers three, they were gonna try to hype up the Power Glove. Power Glove was fucking trash. Okay, I'm sure anybody who remembers the Power Glove will tell you that John was trash. Why does it exist? It was like R- Rob the robot for Gyromite. Gyromite was trash. Rob was trash. I can't tell you how many people, how many times I went over somebody's crib and saw like Rob in the corner just. kept gathering dust. I'm like, why did you get that? I don't know. The commercial made it look hot. I watched the Gyromite commercial with Rob, and I gotta tell you, it was just dark. That's all. It was just fucking dark. What made you think that shit was cool? Nothing. It, when you watch the commercial back, you're like, yo, kids are stupid. Anyways. So Nintendo decided that they were going to go all out to try to maintain their market share before you know, the Sega Genesis and the TurboGrafx-16 came out. Um, the Sega Genesis came out smash it, but the TurboGrafx-16, um, yeah, it didn't. Because the people at NEC didn't know what the fuck they were doing. They blew that. I'll talk about that at a later date, because I lived it. I owned a Sega Genesis, and I owned a TurboGrafx-16, and let me tell you, as ahead of the game as the TurboGrafx-16 was in many respects, it was super expensive too, um, they blew it, blew it. They blew the bag God damn So anyways On top of all this um, So today what I did was um, Previously We did the um, The Boston Legends podcast uh, the episode with Dana Barrows numbers are great, people are loving it then it hit the um, the first part of it hit YouTube, so you can see it visually and listen to it, the audio but you can also see it visually the first part, I believe it's the first 27 minutes of um, a 60 minute interview so that's up We're doing the second episode in a few days. Um, it's going to be a surprise. I'm not going to tell you exactly who we're interviewing, but trust me, it's going to be a perfect one to follow Dana. It's going to be somebody that a lot of people wanted to hear wanting or wanting to hear from. There're going to be some stories that uh, man, a lot of people have been waiting for. I'm excited about it. It's going to be big. Um but moreover what I did today. So there was a um listening event for a friend of mine. Uh her name is Umpa. Her album Cleo is going to drop in um I believe August 10th. So here's the thing. In Boston is really hard to get eyes on you it's really hard to get above the noise it's really hard to be recognized to remedy that uh my boy uh Mark Merrin and my boys um D Loops and Artificial AV who are all part of um Stay True and also uh do the uh the Stu Beat Showcase, which I was a part of, I was the, res- the resident judge for years of uh, the Stu Beat Showcase. Uh, what he also did was he had an event. He's also a promoter, but he also had an event called Verses. What we wanted to do was instead of having people come up and battle, we wanted to have different performers and MCs come up and do their best verses or performances. Because we want to get people who are, you know, performers who can perform live. That was the focus as opposed to, all right, give me bars, 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 bars. No, give me something that's going to move people if they come to see you. If they paid money or you're opening for somebody, move us. Verses went off we had some excellent people come up and perform and respond but one person blew us away uh, judges myself and my boy Acrobatic, the legendary Acrobatic Ak and I were just looking at each other like what the fuck is going on here Umpa tore it down I believe she went on stage three different times, performed three different times, and each time it was clear. She was head and shoulders above everybody else. And we had some excellent performers. Head and shoulders above everybody else. Solid, polished, where, I I believe I yelled, where have you been? Me and Ak were like, where did you come from? Like, what's going on right now? And she was like, I'm I've been in Roxbury. And I'm like, I'm in Roxbury. <laughs> so it blew our mind that this woman had been around. And we'd never encountered her, never seen her until that day. That day was August 8th, 2016. Fast forward tonight, I saw. Her play, her new album Cleo, back to front for a packed room in the um, Bridge Sound Studios, which was formerly Fort Apache, famous studio in Boston, uh, in Cambridge, and I couldn't have been prouder. A lot of people like to take credit for shit they didn't do. Um, I'm not that guy. Oompa would have been where she is, regardless if she showed up that day and performed on our stage, regardless of if we had her doing an event at the um, Stu Beat Showcase, which we, which we did, and she performed and she tore it down there, she would be where she is regardless because she had that kind of talent. She just would have found another way to do it. She would have, There would have been other people involved. I hate it when there are people who like to take credit and say, Hey, we discovered we... No, 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 no. No. None of that shit. All I know is that this album, Cleo, is amazing. She's amazing. And I'm super proud of her accomplishments. And just sitting there in that room with those 40, 50 people just listening to this album... That she made. You know, she got her band together. She got her crew together. She came up with the song ideas. She's been doing that. She was a fully fleshed out performer when we met her. She had already had all this before we met her. Nobody was like, hey, yo, what you need to do is none of that shit. None of that shit. If anything, we did was. Encouraging her and telling her to keep going. I have to do nothing else. Nobody else had to do nothing else. Oomph was oomph. Oomph is oomph. And uh, when her album drops. Good lord. God bless you all. Damn. So I turn 44 in three weeks. And I'm just glad that I'm still alive and on earth to be able to see. Uh, this city have so much talent in it, so many people prospering, so many people doing big things. It's an honor for me. It's a blessing for me. I love it. Um, I'm just glad that I'm still around and I'm finally getting to do some, you know, some things that I always dreamed to happen. I'm glad that there are other people in the scene that are doing amazing things. Uh, <clears throat> what we're doing with For Boston. And the um, Boston Legends podcast. And the um, Boston Legends um, collection. This is something that we've been dreaming about. And working towards and planning. For like two years. And we're executing that plan. If you think that this was a fly-by-night thing and we didn't have all these ideas for what to do and we didn't plan it out and we didn't scale it and we didn't put it together in stages and then we didn't say, all right, so let's do this, let's do this, would this work? Is this feasible? Nothing happens by accident. Their plans and then there are contingencies and then there are contingencies for the contingencies. And then you're just going to have to fly by the seat of your pants and you're going to have to take a chance. And then you adjust that plan on the fly. And then when something else comes along. You go with that. It's a beautiful thing. But yeah, it's just hilarious to think that 30 summers ago, a company like Nintendo, who is so huge and so powerful and so dominant and had an iron grip on an industry and wanted to dominate it was so... scared of possibly losing that grip that they resorted to some of the things they resorted to. I mean, Nintendo maintained control when the Game Boy came out. They maintained control with the Super Nintendo, but it wasn't like it was before. They actually had competition. And the thing is that competition was good. It gave people variety and choice. And when there's variety and choice, what ends up happening is that you have to do more. You have to do better. You have to step your game up. You have to look at the terrain and you have to say... What do we have to do better? Because the thing is that with Nintendo, um, I feel that they got complacent when they didn't have real competition. When they only had to look at the Sega Master System, they were like, we could do whatever we want. We could put out trash games, put the Nintendo seal of approval on it. Pff, what they gonna say? What they gonna do? Nothing. And the thing is that as many games as Nintendo put out that we like to call classics, some of them games were mediocre. Some of those games were mediocre. I had uh This might be the last thing I discuss. One of the last things I discuss. <clears throat> there was a Twitter discussion. It's always a Twitter discussion. There was a Twitter discussion that I had where we were talking about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game, which was released, I believe, June 1989. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles um, game, which was technically a Konami game, but it was released under Ultra, Ultra Games, because they had the license. And oddly enough, I believe Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was the only licensed game to actually appear in the movie The Wizard, which came out December 15th, 1989, I think. That was a Friday. Check it. Um, But we were having a discussion about that game, and I said that game was trash. And a lot of people were like, no, 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 no. I love that game. That game is great. I was like, look at it. Go to YouTube and look at it. That game did not look great. It was a side-scrolling game. It was not. You have great memories of it because of nostalgia, but it was not a great game. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game was great. And the NES version of port of that was great. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game was not great. Matter of fact, it was super hard at some points. It was damn near impossible at some points. Didn't make sense at some points. And you can tell in a lot of places they really... They just didn't use their whole ass. You could just tell. They faxed in a lot of things about that game. Are you trying to tell me that that's how you imagine Leonardo, Donatello, and Raphael to look in that game? Seriously? There's no way. There's no fucking way. That's what you expected. Yes, we're gonna use the turtle. We're gonna use the turtle van. Yay, yay. I'm telling you, go to YouTube and watch a playthrough. Jesus Christ, that game took forever. Um, watch a playthrough of Teenage Mutant Turtles, and you will just look at that screen like, yeah, yeah Those game mechanics weren't great. Look at Homie using the bow staff. Uh, I'm not into that. There's something wrong here. Uh, if you look, do me a favor when you do go to YouTube and you pull up the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles original game from 1989. Right after you watch watch it, and I'm I'm sure you'll get sick of it after a while because it's a ridiculous game. Right after you watch it, pull up. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade game and the NES port of it. Now you tell me that that game that was released in June 1989, that was rushed out for a thirsty ass audience of kids, is as good a game, if not better, than that one. It isn't. Is no one who would say it is. Sure, you enjoyed the game when you were a kid. But when, if you had the choice between that game and that game, which one would you pick? There it is. There it is. Okay, so again, uh, it is now July 26th. And yesterday was July 25th. It was the 30th anniversary of, um, three things. Uh, the Beastie Boys, Paul's Boutique, but it was also the, the 30th anniversary of, um, EPMD's Unfinished Business Album, and on top of that, it was also the 30th anniversary of, um, The D.O.C.'s classic album, No One Can Do It Better. These three albums are classics. And also, there was a big argument on Twitter about what entitles a classic, what, what a classic is. We've had this discussion before. And again, everybody isn't qualified to have this discussion. They're just not. No matter how much they fight and hem and haul and scream, everyone isn't entitled to this discussion. If you don't have the necessary knowledge base, then you can't even determine what a classic is. You can have personal favorites. That's no problem. You can have what you like. Sure. But a classic requires something more than just that cursory knowledge. And it's hard for people to admit, I don't know enough to make the decision or to have the level of discernment necessary to determine whether or not something is a classic. Because something being a classic... It goes beyond opinion. And now that we're entering the 45th minute of this discussion. I don't want to have it anymore. Because I swear I've had this discussion before. This is the 57th episode of Dart Against Humanity. The 60th episode of Dart Against Humanity. Which will be the last episode of Season 3. Will again happen on August 16th, 1989. The day before my 44th birthday. The... Dart Against Humanity will take a break until November 1st, 1989, when the fourth season begins. Next week, I will have a completely different topic that hopefully you'll find interesting. I'm going to try my damnedest. (laughs) Um, I'm just glad that the Red Sox beat the Yankees 19 to three today. Well, not today. Technically yesterday, but Red Sox-Yankees games take so goddamn long that, you know, it almost bled until today. So I will speak to y'all next week, one.